different churches last week. We were going to be at a third church. In fact, we got to fly out of here before noon, I told him. So if we get up and leave, we're not mad at you. Um, but we, when we heard he was preaching, we said, we're going to come here first instead of going where we were supposed to be and then head up there afterwards. And um, so I just want to extend your hands and open your hearts. Father, we just thank you for the gift, how you have worked in, in Sam such great things. Even before you called him to be a pastor and even before you called him to be a pastor here, you have been working in him from birth as his parents held him up before you, much like Samuel of old. And you, you said, I heard that. And you took him, and you've been training him and equipping him, and you've brought him to this place today. And so, Father, we receive his gifts not just as a pastor in this house, but we receive his gift as the proclaimer of your word. Lord, you have called him to be a quipper of the saints for the work of the ministry, so we put ourselves in a position to say, Lord, speak through him. I know what's going on very little compared to what you do, Lord, in my life. You know where you're taking us, Lord, tomorrow and this afternoon. So, Lord, use this man to equip us. We receive his gifts as though you sent him because that's who did send him. And we put ourselves in a position to receive from him as the words given from us from you. And we pray these things in the name and authority of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's good to be here today. Uh, it's always fun to be able to come over and, and, and share share a Sunday morning with you guys instead of sleeping in. <laughs> now it's nice it's nice uh, to have Sunday evening services. We really enjoy that. And uh, kind of helps, well, it gives us the opportunity. If you can't make Sunday morning, you've got the Sunday night option. If you can't make Sunday night, you've got the Sunday morning option. Two different cities, but the same church. Two different congregations, but the same heart. So we're really excited to be a part of that. And, uh, we're, and to get to work through things together, kind of as, as God is speaking uh, this whole series and a couple series that we've done so far that we'll do together. That's always a lots of fun, and to be able to hear from the, the, the voices from St. Paul here in Minneapolis, the voices from Minneapolis over here, so we really enjoy that. And uh, we're pleased to be here today. As some of you know, I grew up in Mexico, and I, I live not very far from a tourist town, about 45 minutes to an hour, and depends who was driving. And it, it was this, this town, and by the beach, there would, there would be these shops. Are you guys familiar with the shops by the beaches in any kind of tourist town? They're selling stuff, and hey, hey, my friend! You know, they'll like reach out to you. It doesn't matter what country you're in. If it's a tourist area, everybody's your friend. My friend, and they'll reach out to you, and they'll try to sell you stuff. And one of the things that they, they would try to sell in my area were sunglasses, cheap sunglasses, because they knew everybody's going to lose their sunglasses at the beach. So they would, they would be selling cheap sunglasses there, and, and they, were, they were Okies. I don't know if you've ever seen those. It's, it looks just like Oakley, but instead of an L, it's, like a, it's an I. They're Okies. And then they would sell watches, too, because people have a way of losing those, and they were Bolex instead of Rolex. And I remember going to New York City. I, I spent some time in New York City about 10, 10 years ago, and the same thing. It was like there was this tourist area there too and everybody's walking around selling watches and who knows if they were stolen or not but there's like bolex watches and there's oaky glasses too so much so that we, we i mean we bought some and we're like these are my folklies 
And we were, we were, we were down with that, and uh, they didn't last very long. But imagine you've got this person that's actually wearing Oakleys. I don't know if I know anybody that actually owns Oakleys. But they're actually wearing Oakleys, and they're walking down the, down the street, and one of these guys comes up with, with glasses with Oakies, and he's like, oh, man, check it out, these Oakies. And, and he starts pitching this to the guy. He's like, hey, my, these, these glasses are so much newer than yours. How about we trade? Right? The person with the Oakleys would be like, you're, you're crazy. I'm not trading. But imagine if the person with the Oakleys were to say, you know, you're right. But I can't just trade with you. That wouldn't be fair. Let me pay you to take your Oakies from you. And I'll give you my Oakleys. Is that ridiculous or what? Or imagine somebody with a Rolex. Somebody walks over with a Bolex and they're like, oh, man, that one's so much shinier. I want that one. It's ridiculous. We wouldn't do that. And yet... There are some areas in our lives where we do that same type of thing. I mean, my daughter is two and a half years old, and my son is about nine months. And uh, this has been happening a lot lately where he will find a cool toy. He can move now. I don't think she's used to that. So he'll find a cool toy, and he'll start playing with it. And she sees it from across the room, and she's like, uh-uh, that's not going to happen. So she walks over, and she's really nice about it. And she, she doesn't rip it out of his hands. She, like, gently takes it out of his hands and puts another piece of garbage type of toy in his hands. <laughs> so the other day, my son was playing with a, with a maraca thing, and he's just loving it. He's shaking it. He's shaking it. He's loving it. And she sees that, and she wants it, and she's kind of getting upset. And she goes, and she grabs a styrofoam-type block, just a little foam block, and carries it over and hands him that. And she's like, it's okay, and takes it and goes away. That's, that's not a fair trade, and we wouldn't, we wouldn't intentionally make trades like that. And if he knew what was going on and he could do anything about it, he wouldn't allow it. But a lot of times in our lives, we're tempted to trade something that's real for something that's fake. Tempted to trade the, the Rolex for the Bolex. And this happened a lot, not just, this doesn't just, it's not new, it doesn't just happen with us. This goes all the way back to the people of Israel, too being tempted to, to trade something real for something fake. But the consequences of these choices are huge. And we see the impact of these choices of trading what's real for what's fake in the lives of the people of Israel. And we're looking at the Ten Commandments in this series, and we're on the Second Commandment. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We're looking at the Ten Commandments, and the first one we talked about last week was have no other gods before me, or have no other gods beside me. And this week we're looking at the second commandment, and if you would, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 through 6, and if you want to stand with me, and we'll read this together. If you've got a Bible, you can read from your Bible. Um, if you want, you can watch, see the words on the screen as I read this. But the people of Israel are around the mountain, and God is speaking from the mountain. This is a very powerful time, and he says, it's, he says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. You may have a seat. 
So he's saying here the first one was no other gods, and we kind of talked about that last week. In, in Minneapolis, we talked a lot about how it wasn't so much that they would remove the worship of Yahweh, but that the temptation, God knew the temptation would be to set another god up beside him. And I've got Yahweh, and I've got these other gods. And that's a lot of what we talk about when we talk about idolatry nowadays. That's what we mean. We take another god, and we set it up next to, next to the one true god. Something else that we worship. And I really struggled as I was, as I was working last week on, on preparing what to say. I'm like, well, what's the difference between the first command and the second commandment? I mean, was, did God just really want to get his point across, or what's the difference? And he says, no other image, and don't bow down before it, don't serve it. And that he said that the consequences of this would pass from generation to generation, negatively and positively, would, if you chose to obey him, it would, it would pass on to thousands, so even more so. We see that the consequences of, obe- of obeying God are even greater than the consequences of disobeying. Like, he'll do even more if you obey, if you choose to love, he will bless thousands through you. So that's kind of what's, what's going on right there. Why is the image thing so important? Make no other images. So I kind of, as I, as I was thinking about that, I, I, I remembered the phrase that we say a lot, uh, a picture is worth a thousand words, right? And then I, I found out that it's actually not worth a thousand words, uh, but that our minds process pictures or images at about one, uh, one billion bits per second, as opposed to when we see words or we hear things, it's about a hundred bits per second which means that a picture is actually worth more like 10 billion, 10 million words. Not a thousand. So I'm assuming God knew this already when he told them, don't make other images, because images are powerful. This This is powerful to communicate something. I mean, you've seen it. You see a little swoosh on somebody's shoes, and you see maybe Nike's the first thing that comes to your mind, and then... Michael Jordan, and then you start thinking about how you really wanted those Air Jordans when you were little, and you couldn't get them. Maybe that's just me. Uh, but pictures communicate a lot. You see Reebok, and maybe you see the little thing that Reebok does. Who knows what that was supposed to be? And, uh, and you might think of Shaq right away, and you go like, mm, I'm not buying those. I don't know. <laughs> but pictures communicate a lot, and they communicate completely different things to different people. So for you, Reebok could have meant something completely different, and Nike could have meant something completely different. And God is saying, I don't want you to have these images because they communicate things to you. They, images are loaded with meaning. So when you try to associate these images with me, you're loading all this other stuff into it that's not really who I am. So images are important. And he goes on, God goes on there on the mountain, he goes on to go through the, the rest of the Ten Commandments. He says, have no other gods, right? No idols, don't take the no Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath, honor, the, honor your parents, do not murder, do not commit adultery. I guess we started over on the Ten Commandments there. Do not steal, do not bear false witness, and do not covet. Apparently, we're not allowed to go past five. Uh, but it ends with the people hearing on the mountain, So God speaks forth these commands to them, and he ends by reiterating two things. Don't have other gods, and don't make images. 
And it says that they heard God speaking from the mountain. And they were terrified, and they said, Moses, we can't take this. We might die. Why don't you go? You know, if somebody's got to die, it's better if it's you. So why don't you go, Moses? You speak to God on our behalf. So Moses does. He goes up on the mountain, and God begins to give him specific instruction on the mountain of how these Ten Commandments would need to be applied in very specific situations. And he's up there, and while he's up there, God gives him kind of a nugget in there in Exodus 23, verses 25 through 29. God gives him a nugget of blessings of worshiping God. And these, this reads like this. So God is speaking to him. He says, worship the Lord your God, and his blessing will be on your food and water. I will take away sickness from among you, and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites out of your way. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. You know what's really interesting for me as I read this? Just we're talking about the Tender Commandments and how God wasn't bipolar and he didn't switch like Old Testament God and New Testament God and he's different. But that this has always been a covenant of love. And that God's heart was, was, has always been for all people. It's not like he, he was playing favorites at any point. Even here, he's talking about driving out the people. His desire was to drive out the people, not to, have them, not to murder them all. He wanted to drive them out. And he, wasn't, he was going to use that they were going to be afraid of the people because they'd heard so much that God had done. And he was going to use um, even hornets to go before, like, almost like the plagues in Egypt, things that would make people go like, I'm out of here. This isn't worth it. Kind of like sometimes I wonder, I, I lived in northern Minnesota for a while, and uh, it was really cold there. We moved here, and we felt like we were moving down south. And we're like, man, it's like 10 degrees warmer here in the winter. It really is. And it's not as windy. This is nice. This is like vacation. But sometimes I wonder, like, when it's really, really cold, like, what does it take to make you say it's not worth it? You know, it's just, it's not worth it. It's too cold. Kind of like that. The hornets are coming. They're getting bitten, and they're like, I can't even work in the field. I'm, it's not worth it. I'm leaving. So God was going to gently drive them out and he, trying to avoid war that would, would, would come to death. And even that they, would, that they would assemble for war, and he would make them confused so they'd all run away. So you see that there, too. But there's also the God's promise that he will provide for them by blessing their bread and their water, he says. He would protect them by giving them no sickness and driving the people out before them. And that he would prosper them, not only fruitfulness and childbearing, but in agriculture too, and long and fulfilling life. These were promises. If you worship me, this is what's going to happen. All of these commandments were part of his covenant of love to remove the confusion. We talked about this the, the first week. Remove confusion, reveal their need for him, and release them into their destiny as his treasured possession, his holy people, and his royal priesthood. This was kind of his, his heart and his desire. This is all part of it. So after this instruction, real quick instruction, we don't know quite how long this, this instruction took that Moses had. It's only a couple chapters. But God says, okay, now go and bring up Nadab, Abihu, Aaron, and 70 of the elders. I want them to come up and meet with me. So Moses goes down from the mountain, wherever, whatever place on the mountain he was, he goes down and he goes back to the people. 
And he tells them everything that God just said. And they said, in response, they said, everything the Lord has said, we will do. He just gave them some some brief, real specific instruction, and they'd already heard the Ten Commandments. So they said, everything the Lord has said, we will do. So Moses doesn't go, okay, let's go. But he's like, no, we're going to make an event out of this so you really remember this. So they, they, they did sacrifices. They made altars. They put up 12 pillars, one for every tribe of Israel. This was a big deal. Once they finished that, he read them the covenant, he, or he reminded them of the covenant, read the words, and then he goes up with Aaron, the elders, Nadab, Abihu, up on the mountain. And we see in, in Exodus 24, verses 10 through 11, it says that Aaron and the elders, they go up on the mountain with, with Moses. I had never noticed this before. I mean, I noticed that they went up on the mountain, but I hadn't noticed this part here. It says in Exodus 24 that Aaron and the elders saw the God of Israel. I was like, wait, wait, I thought Moses was the only one that did that. But Aaron and the elders saw the God of Israel. Not only did they see the smoke, the fire, the thunder, and, all, and, and hear the voice from the mountain, but they went up on the mountain and they saw the God of Israel. And it says that there was under his feet as if it were pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. And at that point, God called Moses higher. So Moses goes higher on the mountain and he goes up with Joshua. And he delegates responsibility for leading the people and resolving any issues to Aaron and Hur while, while he's up on the mountain. So Aaron and Hur and the rest of the elders go back down. I don't know if they were halfway up the mountain or at the base of the mountain, but they go back and they're with the people. Moses goes up and he's up there a total of 40 days. And while he's up on the mountain, God is giving him instruction. He's giving him the tablets of the testimony and if you would turn in your Bibles to Exodus 31, 18. Exodus 31, 18. And this is what God did. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So it's kind of like they said that. But when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And if your your Bible probably has L-O-R-D in caps, and that means it's to Yahweh or to Jehovah. He's using the name of God. Tomorrow is going to be a feast to the one true God, to our God. You'll see why that's important in a minute here. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And another way of reading that is they ate, drank, and rose up to sin. So while Moses is on the mountain getting instruction for worship, the people were with Aaron creating their own form of worship. 
and fashioning an, an image of God that they were familiar with, the golden calf. They made their own God. And guess what they did? And this is where having no other images is important. They said, this is Elohim who brought you out of Egypt. Tomorrow is a feast for Yahweh. So this is it. I mean, we saw the thunder. We, we saw the clouds with the lightning, the thunder, the fire. We were terrified of when we heard the voice. This is, our, this is Yahweh. We've actually discovered what he looks like. And uh, we can carry him around now. It's kind of heavy, but that's okay. We made him, really, with the gold from our earrings. We've made God. And this is Yahweh. This is Elohim who brought you out of Egypt. So what's really interesting here is that Aaron had seen all of those things, and he had actually been called up on the mountain, and he saw God, some manifestation of God that makes it go, he saw God. And he can come down from the mountain and turn around 30-some days later and go, well, this golden calf that I just threw into, that I threw the gold into the fire, and I fashioned this. I made this. This is God. Let's have a feast for Yahweh. This was a big deal. It allowed them to fashion God into something more comfortable, something they were familiar with, something that they could control, something that they could make look like whatever they wanted to. Another really interesting thing is that while, while they were doing this, God was giving Moses instructions for a voluntary offering to do all of the things within the tabernacle. And what they did down on the mountain to make this image at the base of the mountain was a mandatory offering. Everybody give up your earrings. And God's heart was a voluntary offering to do everything that he wanted. It's an interesting side thing. It's like um, our images that we make of God cost us more than what God wants. Um, so this was a big deal for the people of Israel, and it's something that they, they continue to, to wrestle with. And if you go on and you read the rest of the story, Moses comes down, grinds the thing into powder, and then there's this whole like massacre of people who were still engaging in sin and had chosen to run after these things and were doing the got-up-to-play thing. So there was a lot of junk going on there. And there was a lot of people died that day because of this sin. Because they had chosen to take the invisible, immortal God and boil him down to a figure that they could control, that they could make look like what they were comfortable with, and that they could worship however they wanted. That's why no other images is important. Hundreds of years later, the psalmist writes in Psalm 115, answering the same question. We don't have a physical God that we can see and touch. So why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Images are powerful. The images that we give our attention and our affection to, the things that we worship, actually, we become like them. 
So if we worship things that are not like God and that there's something that we have created that's, that makes us feel comfortable, we become like that, like something deaf and dumb and mute and unfeeling and immovable. We become like that when we try to boil God down to something that we can manage and control. And this was a big deal for the people of Israel. I mean, you read their history, this happened. Not only making God into a smaller, more manageable um, image, but also taking other images of other gods and setting them up beside. And Isaiah 40 and Jeremiah 10 speak of the worthlessness of these idols and how, um, how that compares or doesn't compare to the incomparable power and of the invisible and eternal God. Very interesting to read those if you want, Isaiah 40 and Jeremiah 10. But it really gets me here. Those who trust them can become like them. Those who make them become like them too. And the people of Israel did this, and about 800 years later from, the, from the, when, when God is speaking on the mountain, the people of Israel had done this. And in Jeremiah chapter 2, if you want to turn to Jeremiah 2, I'm only going to put portions up there on the screen. But Jeremiah 2, verses 1 through 13. God is speaking to the people of Israel through Jeremiah after years of idolatry, breaking the first commandment, and forming the worship of God their way, changing the worship of Yahweh from the way God had said, adjusting it to fit their way, much like they did with Baal, and much like they did with this calf. And he says to them in Jeremiah chapter 2, the word, uh, it says, the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness. See the picture back to where we were just reading in Exodus? In a land not sown, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells, and yet they lived there 40 years? And I brought you into a plentiful land, to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. They went after idols. They went after other images. And they fashioned the worship of God according to the lands of the people that they, that they were surrounded by. They adjusted their worship of God to look like other forms of worship around them. Much like the people of Israel were doing on the mountain when they made this golden calf, they had seen stuff like this before. This was normal. I mean, they'd been in Egypt for almost 400 years. This was normal. I mean, not, who has an invisible God anyway? Not us. Let's make one that we can see and touch and move. Let's make one that makes us feel comfortable. So it goes on. Therefore, 
I still contend with you, declares the Lord. And with your children's children, I will contend. For cross the coast to the Cyprus and see, or to Kedar, and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Because they were trying to fashion worship that was comfortable, worship that was like the other people, and in the process they left God, and they started to make for themselves cisterns, their own ways. So God is saying, I'm a fountain of living water, and I continue to give water, but instead they're going over here, and they're going like, well, let's make something that can hold water. Let's dig something that water can stay in, something that'll bring life. And he's saying, that can't hold water. It's broken. It doesn't bring life. And he says, you traded the glory of God for worthless things and became worthless because you become like what you worship. So the second commandment had to do more with trying to fit God into things that we liked, trying to make an image that, made, that seemed relevant for us. You know, this is what God should look like. This is what I think he should look like. And trying to adjust our worship to worship that was comfortable for us. That's, I believe, what the second commandment was about. Connected, first and second commandment, really powerful. It's like idolatry that we see today. But whenever we take the worship of God and we try to fashion something and we try to basically take God and boil him down into a more manageable, formulaic kind of God, you know, do these four things and then God will bless you. And, you know, go to church on Sunday and you'll have the American dream. And it's okay to pursue the American dream. When I'm, I'm pretty sure that God said it, that, that what we're supposed to pursue is his will and his righteousness. But when we take God and we try to synthesize him down into something that is either culturally acceptable for us and, and, or comfortable or manageable, that we feel that somehow we can control this God experience, we're breaking the second commandment. Because it's not just about physical images. It's also about physical images, too, though. If you're praying to other images, as the go-between between you and God, that's just like, that's just like the calf. We're calling this physical image, I'm calling that God. And it's not. And it actually messes with who God really is in our minds because it communicates all these other things. Ten million bits per second. Images are loaded. The image thing was really important because God created man in his image. And since sin entered the world, it marred the image of God in man. And what, has, what was man trying to do since then? Trying to make God in his image. Trying to return the favor. Thank you, God. Now I'm going to make you look like me. You know, God can't be that big. He's more like, more like me. I mean, I'm, I'm nice, I'm cool, I'm all that stuff. He's like a better version of me. That's the God I want to worship. Because he can't really be that big, or he can't really be that good, or he can't really be that holy. He can't really be that powerful. He's kind of like a little better version of me with superpowers. 
And we do that. We try to bring God down to our level. And when we do that, we're breaking the second commandment. And these images are images that we can set up physically or images that we can set up in our heart. And God's desire is for us to become like him, not the other way around. And we can't become like him when the images that we're fashioning and the images that we're worshiping and the things we're giving our time and attention to aren't like him. So we're going to become like those things. Romans 8, 29 says that God's plan is for us to be conformed to his image in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says we all with unveiled face. It's a picture back to the mountain and Moses seeing God. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Why does God not want us to have other images that we worship? Because when we're worshiping those things, we become like them. Deaf and dumb, immovable, rigid, unfeeling. But when we worship him for who he really is, and we don't try to put him into a box of what we think God should do that. Have you ever heard people say that? Like, I, I, you know, if God is like that, I don't think I could worship him. If God is like this, I don't think I could worship him. And it's not even like digging deeper to find out, like, is this really what the Bible says about God? Just like this, you know, if he does something that I disagree with, I can't worship a God like that. So I'm going to try to bring him down to be more like me. That kind of God I can worship. Because then I can make him do the, the things I want him to do. I can worship him the way I feel comfortable. I can carry him around with me like a lucky charm. A lot of images that we do that with. That we connect to Christianity, we connect to God. And is it fashioning him into something that we can relate to? So that then we can carry it with us? So now I have God with me because I have this physical object. And instead, replacing the, the fact that God wants to, by the power of his spirit, live inside of us and do stuff through us and make us more like him. I mean, how cool is that? He wants to make us more like him, and we're going like, no, I think I'll take the Okies. Thought about it, you know, Oakley, really cool, expensive, but Okies, they're, you know, they're cool, they'll work. It'll do the trick. I'll take the Okies with the Bolex. So I don't know where you're at today. Maybe, maybe there are things that uh, you've tried to Christianize, you know? We've tried to baptize the American dream. Baptize whatever form of worship we were comfortable with before we came to Christ, and we're like, it's going to refashion that just a little bit and make it Christian. So when I, was, when I wasn't a Christian, I chased after these things, but now that I'm a Christian, I chased after these things for Jesus. That would be what we were talking about here. What does God 
what is God calling us to? What kind of worship is he calling us to? Are we boiling worship down to make it more comfortable for us? You know, God is calling us to give everything. It's like, yeah, I can't worship a God like that. 75% I can do. A God that wants 75% of me, I can do that. I mean, that's what a real loving God would actually be like. You know, I don't know where you're at. Maybe God hasn't fit into your expectations lately. Maybe uh, you can look at your life and you see ways that you've tried to bring God down to your level you know, so you can relate more. It's true. He's a personal God. He wants relationship with us, but he's still huge. He's still all-powerful, all-knowing, and if, it was a, if he was a God I could understand, in that sense, he wouldn't be deserving of my worship. If I could figure out and have every answer to every question I've ever had about God, something would be wrong with that because I am the creation, not the creator. But when I try to bring him down to my level, I'm just making him to look like me. So maybe there are people or images or other spirits even that you found yourself praying to, invoking to get to God. And you've, you look at your life and maybe you, you see, man, I've broken the second commandment. I've tried to make God more comfortable. I've tried to change what he says or ignore it. When I'm reading the Bible, it's like, I don't understand that part. Eh, keep reading. Ooh, that's uncomfortable. <laughs> Not going to read that part either. I'm just going to try to pull the pieces out that I'm okay with and I'm going to fashion God to be the God that I want him to be. And when we've done that, and we've all done it, I think, if we're honest, we've broken the second commandment. And we've tried to make God look like us. And what his heart is for us is he's like, I want you to look like me. So today, uh, knowing that his promise is that he'll protect you, he'll provide for you, he will prosper you, he'll release you into his destiny for you. If you choose to worship him alone, if I choose to worship him alone, knowing that, why would we trade something real for something fake? It, I mean, even, the, even if the real choice is the harder choice, because I don't understand all of him, but why would I do it? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, whoever's um, going to be playing these last few songs here. And maybe today you need to repent of trying to make God manageable or trying to make God fit into the American dream, and that's what God's calling you to do today. This guy's quickening something in your spirit. It's like, man, I've done that. Maybe, maybe you need to repent of making him fit into your um, preconceptions or trying to make him meet your expectations, or maybe there was a time in your life where you were chasing after physical images or or other spirits, or physical idols, and, and worshiping them, or praying to them, or praying through them, that you need to come to God and say, God, I, I'm sorry for that. I repent of that. I reject that. I don't want anything to do with that. Because you are the one true God. But today, I, I, my prayer for all of us, and as we respond in worship here, is that we would receive his grace and his glory that we would not be like the people of Israel who said, man, we heard God and he's scary, so you go. But that we would 
with unveiled faces approach God and behold his glory. Kind of not just now, not just during a service, not just as music is playing, but in our lives, be seeking after to know God. To have the power of God revealed to us. Man, my, I, like I, I prayed before uh, asking God, God, you, you showed yourself to Moses, why not me? You showed yourself now, now that I know this, to Aaron and 70 elders, why not me? Why won't you and why can't you? And he can and he will if we seek him. He said, if you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. So it's not like we have to settle for something less. The Holy Spirit is even more present in that sense with us now than with Moses. Moses had like a momentary encounter with God. We get to walk around with the Holy Spirit inside of us. Why would we trade something real for something fake? So my prayer for all of us is that we would receive his grace and his glory, his protection, his provision, that he would prosper us as we seek to know him for who he really is, and we become conformed to his image. So they're going to lead us in worship in a couple songs here, and I want you, where you're at, to process this with God, pray. If, if nothing else, invite God to reveal himself in a greater way to you this week. If you want to come down, you can come down and pray. But let's, let's seek God together for a few minutes here. just sing a song and be done with it.